0: AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the American Bankers Association. Farmers and ranchers, urge your lawmakers to support the ACRE Act and strengthen rural America. Visit secureamericanopportunity.com slash ACRE to learn more and take action. If you want to make someone in agriculture shiver a little, you don't need to worry about touching the thermostat. Just mentioning the 1980s will do. That decade contained a level of farm country upheaval not seen before or since. The era still serves as the high watermark for tough times in the farm economy. How many times have we all heard the phrase, it's bad, but it's not as bad as the 80s. Why that decade unfolded the way it did is multifaceted. Who is at fault is anyone's guess. But what that decade caused in the US financial markets can now be seen clearly with the benefit of about 40 years of hindsight and the ag lending infrastructure available today can draw clear connections to that decade. Let's explore the history of agricultural finance in the fourth episode of our deep dive on farm and food policy drivers, Extra Credit. My hometown of Woolsey, South Dakota has something in common with many other small towns across the country. The old bank is now the town bar. Yes, the brick building that financed many of the other brick buildings standing throughout town is now the home of Shooter's Saloon, a venue for high quality taxidermy and pizza with a quantity of cheese that would make a dairy farmer blush. It's a story that can be recognized in many small towns across the country. Maybe that building isn't a bar, but it's rarely still a bank. It's a familiar story for Ed Elfman, who grew up in central Minnesota, but today lobbies for the American Bankers Association.
1: Every small town had a brick building on the corner of Main and Elm Street or Main and Division Street, and that was the bank, right? That was the first brick building in town. It was usually the biggest building to start out. It was the the founding of that town. And you see a lot of these banks, first state bank of whatever, might have been formed in 1882, And then seven miles down the road, it was formed in 1883. You know, every time the town moved with the railroad or towns were built with the railroad.
0: By way of disclosure, ABA is the sponsor of this episode. Banks spread across the country at about the same rate the homesteading population did. But then as the roaring 20s were coming to an end, there was a different kind of crisis spreading across America, the Great Depression. The stock market crashed in 1929 and a series of bank crises ensued as the American economy was in turmoil. The 1933 collapse of the commercial banking system prompted President Franklin D. Roosevelt to declare a banking holiday and stop transactions for a week. The federal government stepped in to help in numerous other ways, including with the creation of USDA's Farm Security Administration. That FSA was the forerunner to what would become the Farmers' Home Administration, which issued both farmland and operating loans and is often referred to as the lender of last resort in farm country. Needless to say, all of this economic chaos led to sweeping financial system reforms and a lot of banks going belly up. In fact, according to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which sprang up in the New Deal era to build consumer trust in the financial system and also to provide deposit insurance, the number of federally insured banks in recent history peaked in 1984 at just under 14,500. Today, the number is about 4,600, a decline of 68%. As an interesting side note, The number of bank branches, or auxiliary locations of an existing bank, has grown about 68% in the same time frame. Presumably because every city block in these United States now consists of a coffee shop, an expensive restaurant, and a bank branch. Maybe two if it's a long block. But back to farm country. Financial stress and banking sector consolidation shrank the number of lenders in many parts of the country. But banks aren't the only institutions loaning money in rural America. I'm Todd Van Hoos. I'm the CEO of the Farm Credit
2: Council, which is the trade association that represents the farm credit system in Washington. I've been around farm credit. uh, I'll put it this way. I did a term paper when I was in college on the crisis on ag credit in 1985. Uh, while I was at at the University of Kentucky and doing an internship at the Old Farmers Home Administration. And I have, in one way or other, been around Farm Credit ever since.
0: Van Hoos's career across multiple different aspects of the Farm Credit system gives him a good look at the system's many changes over the years. For starters, the current form of the Farm Credit system wasn't what was on the books originally.
2: Farm Credit was created over 100 years ago, 106 years ago in 1916. And at the time, it was sort of a government agency, right? It was really kind of a USDA-like agency, which made farm loans, because nobody else could make farm loans. And so they had federal land banks everywhere, and, and the evolution was they went from long-term lending, ultimately to short-term lending, then co-op lending, and then they went through a whole process to privatize. This would have been under Eisenhower. And so during Eisenhower's administration, the farm credit system switched from being a government entity to a privately owned cooperative entity. And that's when those customers first got the right to elect their own directors to serve on those boards. And that's the way the farm credit system has been governed ever since.
0: USDA's role in ag lending was evolving too. In 1946, the Farmers' Home Administration Act consolidated the Farm Security Administration with the Emergency Crop and Feed Loan Division of the Farm Credit Administration. This act added authorities to the new Farmers' Home Administration that included ensuring loans were made by other lenders. Later legislation established lending for rural housing, rural businesses, and rural infrastructure. And peaking forward, a USDA reorganization in 1994 led to even more changes, including the creation of the Farm Service Agency, which took over the farm credit portion of the Farmers' Home Administration. The Rural Housing and Lending Authorities were transferred to the Rural Development Mission Area. But let's flash back to the 1970s, where the seeds were being planted for another round of trouble on the Farm Country balance sheet. Bob Young is an ag economist with stops on Capitol Hill at the University of Missouri and the American Farm Bureau Federation on his resume. He says the decade leading up to the 1980s was a turbulent time across the economy.
3: The late 70s we were talking about though, you know, 10, 12, 15% inflation wasn't uh, wasn't unheard of, even at at those levels of with those levels of inflation. Uh, land prices were jumping up significantly. Lenders were, I won't say pushing, but were certainly uh, encouraging folks to borrow, to buy land and buy equipment, etc. And don't forget that commodity prices weren't too bad in the, you know, kind of mid-late 70s. And so farm incomes weren't, you know, they weren't great necessarily, but they weren't bad.
0: With inflation hitting the economy hard, in stepped Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1979 to 1987 a key part of Volcker's plan to get inflation under control was to raise interest rates. And boy, were they raised. Federal interest rates bottomed out in the 1970s at 4.61% in January of 77. But four and a half years later, rates were at 19.1%. Volcker was appointed by President Jimmy Carter and reappointed by President Ronald Reagan. His bipartisan backing gave him the kind of leverage he needed to stay the anti-inflationary course despite calls to take it easy. Randy Russell was the chief of staff to Ag Secretary John Block during the Reagan administration. Russell was tasked with helping Block set up a meeting in 1985 with Volcker to discuss the role financial regulations were playing in the 80s farm crisis. Volcker accepted the request and met Russell and Block at USDA's Washington
3: headquarters. And he actually came over for lunch. And it was Jack and myself and Paul Volcker. And Paul Volcker was this rather large... Uh, individual about six foot seven and comes in and, and uh, we have lunch we have a discussion with him and Jack did his uh, best job to lobby the uh, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve chairman at that time to uh, kind of loosen up on some of these banks where we weren't facing all these foreclosures and uh, Chairman Volcker looked at him and looked at me we were the only three in the meeting and he said look I hear you And I feel your pain. Uh, But I was brought in for one purpose, and that was to get inflation out of the economy. And by God, I'm going to do it. That pretty much ended the
0: lunch. Skyrocketing interest rates made for tough times. Loan repayments suffered as producers struggled to pay back the principal and interest on farm mortgages. And in many cases, producers were put in untenable positions. My boss, Sarah Wyant, founded AgriPulse in 2004 after a career in agriculture reporting that started as the 80s farm crisis was beginning to show its effects on the marketplace.
4: It was a time where so many farmers were just distraught. Interest rates were skyrocketing. Uh, There was uh, equity was dropping. Um, They were going to their lenders and finding that... um, You know, debt to asset ratios were dramatically different than even just a couple of years before. And so there was just such tremendous stress in farm country. And my first job was really designed to go out and talk to farm families about all that they were going through trying to keep the family together during these incredibly difficult times.
0: One of Sarah's first big stories as a reporter included one of the great taboos in rural America, a farmer talking about money
4: this young borrower Gary Barrett had just taken out like a 40-year farm ownership loan, 30 or 40, I can't remember for sure, but he had been called up uh, three years into it and told he had to stop. They just, they called his loan and he was brave enough to share all of his financials with me, which we published and gave people an indication of how this farmer had been led to believe he had this long glide path to getting started in farming, but uh, he was called uh, very early on. And that was replicated places all over the country. And even in my own farm family, I remember the farm credit system talking about how we're going to go the extra mile. But my brother, who was just starting in farming and all of his notes were uh, signed by my mother and father. Uh, was called in and also told that he would no longer receive financing. And I was in that meeting with my dad and my brother, and I remember thinking, you know, I've been told one thing about everybody helping as much as they possibly can, but here's a younger farmer again with little or no equity, and he had no place to go.
0: That farmer had what he thought was long-term financing through the Farmers Home Administration. Just a couple of years later, His credit was cut off. As the farm economy went south, many producers had trouble making payments on the credit they had secured from many places, including the government. With the Reagan administration intent on reducing the federal deficit, David Stockman, the head of the White House Office of Management and Budget, demanded USDA cut back on the overdue loans it had on the books. Things were bad for both the government and producers, but it's not like they were good for commercial lenders either.
5: Well, the 1980s were a very difficult time. We lost a lot of community banks uh, when that, you know, when that crisis occurred. I was I was working on Capitol Hill, and uh, you could read articles about uh, banks being closed by regulators and uh, farmers losing their farms.
0: Mark Scanlon is with the Independent Community Bankers Association. He says the farm crisis reshaped the books for many ICBA members.
5: I think during that time, people learned basically to be very focused on cash flow lending as opposed to asset uh, lending, you know, using farmland only, for example, uh, as their underwriting uh, tool. So they basically, I think, became very risk-conscious so that they were aware of the of uh,
0: the risk
5: and they made sure their l- lending going forward was
0: more cash flow-oriented. Elfman says the same could be said for ABA members as well.
1: But we had banks that were 80-90% agriculture. So when the ag market went, that bank didn't do so well with it. Now on the high end, you're going to have banks that are 50-60% to 60% ag and there's not a ton of those. Most banks are about twenty to thirty percent agriculture. They're more diversified in their portfolios, which makes a lot of sense to protect the institution and then protect the local shareholders and all those things in that community.
0: But in defense of bankers, Young points out many of them were making the decision that fit with the conventional wisdom of the time.
3: Did they make bad decisions? In retrospect, yes. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. At the time that they wrote the loans, were those bad decisions? No, they were, they were probably pretty reasonable.
0: I'm going to be honest with you. I'm barely scratching the surface of the root causes of the 80s farm crisis. There's been so much good reporting on the subject by my colleagues in the media and a litany of academic papers published on the subject that I'm just not going to have time to give all of the various factors at play their full consideration. Instead, I'm going to focus on the laws and regulations at play in those days and what that means for the farm policy framework of today. But first, we talked about how the banks weathered the 1980s. How was the farm credit system doing? Much like the rest of the lending infrastructure of the time, not well. When farm credit
2: got into financial difficulty, it wasn't so much a credit problem, although that was part of it. It was an asset liability mismatch. In other words, as interest rates skyrocketed in the 1980s, the farm credit system was pricing its loans in an ineffective manner. It it Because, you know, as a co-op, the pressure is, gosh, insulate your borrowers, insulate your borrowers. And so as those interest rates went up, we were pricing debt on the average cost of funds. So inevitably, our interest rates lagged. So we had the best deal in town. Farmers came to the farm credit system, got those loans because it was a little bit cheaper out there. And then as interest rates... Started to decline again, we were still pricing those loans the same way. And so again, our interest rates to customers lagged. So we saw everybody, you know, huge chunks of agriculture who were financially sound enough to refinance did.
0: And that created a real crisis in the farm
2: credit system.
0: That crisis put farm credit on the congressional agenda in three consecutive years in the 1980s setting the stage for a gradual shift in the way production agriculture secures capital and providing decades of lobbying material along the way. We'll discuss that next. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the American Bankers Association. Farmers and ranchers, listen up. Interest rates are at 20-year highs, and the lines of credit our industry depends on are out of reach for many. Now, there's finally something you can do about it. Contact your lawmakers today and urge them to support the ACRE Act, a vital bill in Congress which will enable community banks to compete and offer lower rates to farmers, ranchers, and rural homeowners. Even your neighbors will benefit. In rural communities, qualifying home mortgages would be eligible for more competitive interest rates under ACRE. Visit secureamericanopportunity.com slash acre to contact your lawmakers. Passing legislation is hard. Ask any lobbyist, Hill staffer, member of Congress, or anyone else. The process from drafting a bill, getting it through committee, clearing both chambers of Congress, reconciling any differences between the House and Senate, and finally sending a bill to the president's desk has produced plenty of gray hairs in Washington, And that's not even taking into account whether or not the president will sign the bill. I mean, look at the Farm Bill. It's the legislative basis for the nation's ag and food policy. And it only happens every five years, in theory, of course. So why in the heck would the Farm Credit System submit itself to three major reauthorizations in three years? Long story short, it didn't have much of a choice.
2: And there was a Farm Credit Bill separate and apart from the 85 Farm Bill in 85, 86, and 87. Uh, because the crisis was so severe, and Congress was trying to do things to, to make sure the farm credit system stayed out there uh, financing farmers. And the first couple of times,
0: it really didn't work. In 1985, the national farm debt was about $212 billion, and the farm credit system found itself with almost $70 billion in outstanding loans. Farmers were going belly up, and farm credit was at risk of going with them. What followed were three bills to get the system back on its feet. The first bill in 1985 gave more regulatory authority to the Farm Credit Administration and created the current three-person board to oversee the farm credit system. Syngenta lobbyist Mary Kay Thatcher was with the American Farm Bureau Federation at the time.
4: Uh, It was always referred to as the 13-member board they had before, which was one member from each district was really more of a cheerleader board than they were a real regulator. And so we were able to put in place... A regulator, the Farm Credit Administration, that's very much like the Comptroller of the Currency or FDIC is for banks. And they really do oversee those banks to make sure they're healthy. And my gosh, now the farm credit system is probably as healthy, if not healthier, than it's ever been.
0: After the 85 bill stood up a stronger regulatory structure, the 86 bill tweaked interest rate policy, stripping up a provision in the 85 bill that gave the Farm Credit Administration the ability to approve member interest rates. But even after those two bills, Farm Credit's problems just weren't going away. So it was back to Capitol Hill for another crack at a legislative fix. What followed was a pivotal piece of legislation. The 1987 Farm Credit Act shrank administrative costs through mergers, added borrower rights language, and created a secondary market for ag real estate and rural home mortgages called the Federal Agricultural Mortgage Corporation, or Farmer Mac. But perhaps most importantly... The bill included a bailout to the tune of $4 billion in authorized assistance, although $2.7 billion of it was never touched. The bill passed toward the tail end of 1987, and President Ronald Reagan signed the bill in January of 1988. But if the Reagan administration had its way, that bailout money wouldn't have been included in the package. Jeff Shipp was a longtime lobbyist for the Farm Credit Council. In fact, he joined the association in the thick of the lobbying fight for the 1987 bill. The administration was uh, essentially lobbying um, not
6: to have money be made available to the system. Fortunately, the Congress recognized that that was a non-starter, and the Congress overruled the interests of the Reagan administration. And we had great uh, Democrat and Republican champions, uh, uh, our Chairman and ranking member on the House Ag Committee at the time were Chairman De La Garza and uh, Mr. Madigan from Illinois. And then on the Senate side, it was uh, uh, Senator Leahy and Senator Luger. So you had strong bipartisan support, both Democratic and Republican, that helped, I think, the uh, Reagan
0: administration get through uh, what I view as a pretty strong dose of skepticism. The farm credit system would go on to pay back that loan with interest in 2005. But once the 1987 bill was passed, Ship says there wasn't much of an appetite to keep applying short-term fixes to the system.
6: After the mid-1980s and those three big bills, our friends on Capitol Hill said, we've heard enough for a while. Go go take care of business. Do what you need to do to to serve farmers and ranchers and co-ops in this country. But I think there was uh, uh, farm credit fatigue after those three years. So there wasn't a lot of going back up to the Hill. We were very cautious about uh, going up to the Congress and and looking at things.
0: So Farm Credit has been careful not to overstep its legislative welcome ever since. Sure, there have been some legislative pushes. In fact, the council has several priorities for the upcoming Farm Bill. But suffice it to say, they're not interested in a reauthorization three-peat anytime soon. In the days since that legislative flurry of activity, many changes have hit Farm Credit and Ag Finance. Elfman says some of those changes have been positives for banks and customers.
1: There's a lot of changes to banking law uh, in the 80s, early 90s, uh, across the board. And some of those things you used to see where you had states that were one bank branch per town, and that was it, right? Now when you see this, where you can have more bank branches across, or you can have multiple banks in one town, when they're all competing with each other, that's that's a good thing. And it helps drive down, again, the leverage side. Also creates more competition and then offers more choices to consumers, which is a good thing at the end of the day.
0: As Scanlon puts it, some of that is due to the nature of the business. Farm
5: lending is not cookie-cutter loans like, you know, it's not like a lot of housing loans. in you know, That could be more of a cookie-cutter model. With farm loans,
0: every farm is different. Now this is going to shock you, but ABA, ICBA, and the Farm Credit Council have occasionally disagreed on matters of public policy. In fact, there have been, as Ship puts it, some real Donnybrooks
6: over the years with the commercial bankers, uh, with their lobby teams here in D.C. You know, both organizations, as I understand it, had standing policy that when the farm credit system ever spoke to either its regulator or it, or the Congress to look at updating our lending activities, which would require a change in either regulation or law or both. Uh, no matter what it was, the commercial bank lobby opposed it. And it really didn't matter what it was. Whether it was an inch
0: or 20 feet, they opposed as a matter of policy. So that's the farm credit lobbyist perspective. How do the banking lobbyists see it?
5: GSCs in general are created for a... a specific purpose. In the case of farm credit, it was created to serve agriculture. And uh, they have tried to expand that to say, you know, they should serve all of rural America and so forth. And, you know, those types of things uh, create risk in driving private sector capital out of the market. So we just think Congress needs to be very careful in approaching that.
1: You have our institutions are being federally taxed at whatever the corporate tax rate is, which is currently 21% right now, on farm real estate loans. However, farm credit is not. They're at 0% on farm real estate loans. So when we talk about what we're looking for, we're looking for equity. At the end of the day, the best way to serve customers is to have the same rules and same regs across the board for everybody involved in that world.
0: That leads us to one of the top priorities for the banking lobby as it relates to agricultural lending. Again, in full disclosure, ABA is the sponsor of this episode, and their advertisements talk about the ACRE, or Access to Credit for Our Rural Economy, Act. The bill would even out the tax disparity Elfman mentioned by taking the current 21% tax rate for corporate lending and bring it down to 0% on ag real estate loans. Both Scanlon and Elfman explained their support for this bill when I talked to them for this podcast, and I asked them both the same question in response. Why take the bank rate down to zero instead of taking the farm credit rate up to 21? Scanlan pointed to some of the political realities in modern-day Washington.
5: Congress doesn't like to increase taxes uh, on constituencies, you know, a lot. So I think rather than taking away from one constituency, we simply are trying to be on a more level footing and have some of the same benefits that others have
0: already enjoyed. For Elfman, the response was a little different.
1: We, for a long time, were talking about taxing farm credit, making them equal on that end. But all that would do is raise interest rates for everybody, right? Because farm credit would pass that on to their customers much the way that any institution would. So instead, we said, let's help the farmers and ranchers at the
0: end of the day. Farm credit doesn't see it that way. Banking lobbyists like Scanlon and Elfman argue the lower taxes would, in turn, lower interest rates, and producers would stand to benefit. But the Farm Credit Council argues the bill, as it is currently written, doesn't have a way to codify a producer benefit. Farm credit banks are member-owned cooperatives, and council lobbyists contend that lower tax rate allows the banks to either distribute patronage to members or to build up the capability to lend in the following year. That's one of several areas where banking and farm credit disagree. In fact, over the years, the Donny Brooks, as Ship put it, have put Capitol Hill in an awkward position.
6: It's difficult for members of Congress because, you know, they come from uh, these districts, at least on the House side, where they've got a number of farm credit folks they know well. They're the local associations and the board members and borrowers. And you've got all these little commercial banks as well that are uh, uh, all um, um, concerned about the farm credit system and what it's doing. And their trade associations on the bank side feed that conversation, so they're stimulating their members of Congress. puts the members of Congress in a very difficult position. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a member of Congress say, hey, um, um, I, I really like the farm credit system. I really like the commercial bankers. Uh, they're all friends of mine, and I'm going to be with my friends. So it, 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 it's hard to advance the ball. Uh, when
0: members of Congress are facing this agitation of concern. One of the last big clashes between banks and farm credit on Capitol Hill came in 2015 when the House Ag Committee hosted former FCA Chair Kenneth Spearman for an oversight hearing. Much of the hearing focused on one transaction, a $725 million loan to Verizon made by CoBank, the biggest lender in the farm credit system. The transaction was part of $12 billion in financing Verizon needed to buy out Vodafone. ICBA cried foul, saying in a letter to FCA that CoBank's financing, quote, appears to be an effort to leverage their GSE status deeply into the realm of multinational, non-agricultural, and non-cooperative corporate financial deals, unquote. The group said the loan was clearly a breach of lending authority. During the hearing, House Ag members, including Georgia Republican Austin Scott, echoed ICBA's concerns.
3: I want to be maybe a little more blunt than some of my other colleagues have. Uh, You are the regulator. I think the farm credit system is extremely important to the parts of the country that I represent. Certain people getting outside of the parameters of what the farm credit system was set up for, I believe, are putting the whole system uh, at risk. Uh, As the regulator, I do think when you have an organization who is putting the system at risk, you do have the ability then to step in. And, and, and stop that. And While what they're doing might be technically legal, it is certainly in my opinion and apparently in the opinion of the majority of the members of this committee who are your greatest advocates in Congress that it is outside the scope and the intent uh, of the farm credit system. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll just be honest with you, I don't think, I don't think Cobank's going to stop. Until, until someone stops them.
0: CoBank and FCA defended the transaction as a form of risk diversification. But since then, things have been relatively quiet. Vin Hoos argues that's because Farm Credit hasn't been pushing new initiatives for bankers to oppose. But that theory could be tested with Farm Credit's desire to expand lending authority to support loans for broader rural infrastructure efforts. But in many ways... The two sides sort of need each other the farm credit system can't take deposits we don't have checking accounts we we are not
2: transactional um and there's a lot of lending we don't do and there's a lot of financial services we don't provide we're a very limited sort of
0: uh, niche player in the market and in a few areas the two sides will find themselves on the same side of a lobbying fight for instance There's broad agreement among farm credit and commercial bank lobbyists today that the next farm bill needs to increase the caps on guaranteed loans at USDA's farm service agency. And Van Hoos says banks and farm credit will often end up involved in the same operations. It's a good management practice because, you know, if you're a commercial-sized operator, right, you you
2: want to diversify your risk. And so you're going to have some probably lines of credit with your local commercial bank or a regional bank. You're going to have some lines of credit and some mortgage with the farm credit system. That's a good management practice. So I I would call that the norm.
0: USDA, banks, and farm credit leaders will continue to coexist in farm country because all are needed and often serve separate borrowers' needs. And who knows, maybe they can all meet up at one of those old brick banks for a drink or two. This episode of AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the American Bankers Association. Join us next week for the final episode of our third season focused on the history of the nation's conservation policy. For AgriPulse Deep Dive, I'm Spencer
3: Chase.